Welcome in the Great Khan's Tent. History, Literature and Storytelling In the Great Khan's Tent is now available on YouTube. You can find us using this podcast name. Fear not, listeners, episodes will still be released on this podcast first, and it is only after a delay of a week that I will upload them onto YouTube. You can still find us on all your podcast providers first. Are you interested in getting the book you just published reviewed? Writing some piece of literature and need help getting it out there and promoted? Interested in sharing what piece of literature we should cover next? Well, fret not. In the Great Khan's Tent is now available on Patreon, where your contribution can help in growing this podcast. For as low as $3 a month, a price less than a good, and I mean good, cup of coffee, you can help contribute to the growth of this podcast. Every bit helps, but as always, it is not necessary to do so, but will be appreciated. Find the Patreon link on our website on our social media accounts, or email us and we can send it to you. Thank you. If you have any suggestions, comments, or complaints, please be sure to email us at all lowercase in the great Hans tent at gmail.com. That is in the great Hans tent at gmail.com. We would love to hear from our listeners. Thank you for listening, and now on with the show. Hello listeners, and thank you for joining us today. In this special episode, I hope to continue our learning journey to bring you the history of the 1001 Nights, also commonly referred to as the Arabian Nights. In this second episode, we begin to examine what the supposed origins are for this tome of work and the influences that inspired this collection. It is important for our listeners to understand that any literary text, especially one which originated as oral tales, can have multiple factors to explain how these stories originated, how they were compiled, and are not limited to having multiple sources of inspiration, and no clear firm foundation that a scholar can say, Aha! There is the origin. A question of oral literature. Before we examine how the influences that led to the creation of the 1001 Nights, it behooves us to understand some of the basics of attempting to find the origin point of oral literature and if it can truly have a so-called origin point. This leads us to the first largest question of them all. Can the 1001 Nights have an origin point? The nature of oral storytelling does not really lend itself to clearly point out how it came about, whether through someone's experiences, an event that they tried to explain, or most simply a fragment of someone's imagination. Even if we had figured out how it came about, we can never be sure that the version we have, say for the last 50 years, was really the version that originated it. Consider a game that proves this point, commonly known as Chinese Whispers or Chinese Telephone. One person says something like, the cat is brown, to start the game with, and by the time it comes around in a full circle, the phrase has been changed depending on how the players interpreted what they heard and if the players themselves are reliable narrators. 
In the end, at an indeterminate length of time, the phrase could have evolved itself to become the cow and the horse jumped over the brown cat. A person who was not involved in the game, but was there when the end phrase was told out loud, would not understand what the original phrase was and could only experience what that phrase came out to be at that specific point in time. This person, to gain an understanding or to fulfill the curiosity, might have asked a couple of players who told him their version based on their own understanding. The curious listener could have asked the original player who started the game, but since they only came at the end to hear the ending phrase, the curious listener does not know who the originator is. Thus, the curious listener now has two variations of what they had themselves heard. In simple terms, to find the original story is a monumental task in relation to oral storytelling unless it is documented right there and then and the documenter could themselves be described as reliable. Therefore, it is next to impossible to find any convincing origin point. As oral stories began to be written down, the nature of how they were disseminated had increased. No longer did people who wanted to hear these stories have a single source to choose from anymore. They now had the opportunity to get their hands on the written version. Of course, this is simply ignoring the socio-economic structures present in various geographical locations, depending on where we are discussing, which led to only a certain stratum of the population, in the most common case being that only the ruling class and the nobility the priesthood and or the merchant class would have known how to read at various levels. It would really be impossible to directly ask them what they read, so we have to turn to the archaeological evidence to provide a glimpse of what their literature, primarily derived from oral literature, had looked like. Here I think it would be wise to try to discuss in a limited capacity why this literature existed. We know that the 1001 nights were often told in coffee houses or other places where men gathered after their work had been completed to enjoy listening to stories and to enjoy the company of their friends and or neighbors. Similarly, it is not hard to assume that in prior centuries the presence of oral stories helped do the exact same thing or could attempt to explain a number of phenomena related to themselves, such as how a people and their culture developed, how they got here both in a physical and in a religious sense, and how to help explain their beliefs, provide moral guideposts, or help figure out how to do the right thing. It also may have helped them in understanding whatever gods they believed in, and how those deities acted in certain situations, such as if they were really fickle and could not be relied upon when it really mattered, as was the case of the stories told of Mesopotamian deities. While each of these tales were unique in their own way, they are always seems to be some similarities or commonalities that are present and were developed and later could be traced by scholars among various compendiums of oral literature which was written down. The examination of these tales only had begun to really occur during the European colonial period and continues to this day. 
It would, in my scholarly opinion, be right to start off in the land of summer, where we find the first evidence of two forms of oral stories in existence that were written down and that have come down to us. I realize that there may have been older stories that were still being told, but since my purview is restricted according to my specific geographical locations, I would not have come across them. Therefore, I must work with what I have. One of the first surviving forms of literature is that of Gilgamesh, the king of Ur, who defied the gods and then searched for immortality. He was a heroic character type who exemplified bravery, faced countless dangers, traveled with trusted companions, and was extremely arrogant. The second form of oral literature that has come down to us is extremely widespread and still known to us today. I like the story of Gilgamesh, the story of the Great Flood, and of the prophet Noah does not feature a heroic character type, but rather a common man chosen by God, or gods, depending on where a person read it or heard it from, to perform certain tasks to save his people. Often the name of the prophet Noah is not mentioned, but is rather changed to suit the names of the culture in which the story is found. In the case of Sumer, the name of the person chosen was Utnapishtim, a common idea that gained some precedence and still holds some weight in some scholarly corners is that all oral stories which have survived or have survived due to them being written down came from a single source of knowledge. This theory is known as the monoclausal hypothesis. Monoclausal hypothesis argues that, that an oral story started in a specific geographical location and from there it spread worldwide. It should be made clear here that I consider this idea to be an oversimplification and in most cases completely erroneous. Other geographically isolated cultures that were reasonably distant did create their own heroic archetypal story, and in the case of the story of the Great Flood, almost all cultures have their own variations. It is much more to my scholarly tastes that the true theory regarding oral storytelling and textual literature is found in the polygenetic hypothesis, which argues oral tales like the one of Gilgamesh and of the Great Flood had independent origins that have common roots and that the flow of oral tales through avenues such as trade routes contributed to the spread of such literature. It is also my belief that stories such as the Great Flood have a basis in history, which is why all cultures that I am familiar with have a version of the Great Flood story. The story of Gilgamesh, while existing in a written format, that of the Akkadian script from the 2nd millennium BCE, had stopped being spread at some point in time, and there is no clear parallel to be found in the 1001 Nights. Here we can reasonably assume that Gilgamesh had lost its luster as a story that was told. We can never be clear why this oral story, which had been written down, was forgotten. The only reason we currently know of its existence and that we have a particularly complete translation of it was due to its rediscovery by the English archaeologist Austin Henry Vanyard in the library of Ashurbanipal in 1849 CE. While it died out in the Middle East, 
the influence it had can be felt in the forms that it inspired. The Greek tales of the Iliad and the Odyssey were children, so to speak, of Gilgamesh, since the Greeks who had extensive trading networks with Sumer and certainly traveled as far would have encountered the story and spread into Greece itself. Here it was subsequently modified to fit the local sensibilities and tastes of the Greeks themselves becoming offshoots of Gilgamesh and allowing it to survive in some format. The question of why the story of Gilgamesh does not feature in the 1001 Nights and why we cannot identify a Gilgamesh-like figure in the larger stories within the compendium is beyond the scope of this episode, unfortunately. However, we can identify that the adventures of Sinbad, considered an orphan story by many scholars and not originally part of the 1001 Nights, takes its place as an offshoot or a child of the Gilgamesh story and will be engaged in a future episode. One basic clue that we can extract from the stories which we have encountered so far in this podcast is that they clearly do not lend themselves to the presence of such a singular, spectacular, and heroic figure. The nature of the stories we have listened to so far, apart from the porter and the three ladies of Baghdad, are all of characters that are normal, average human beings, regardless of their social status. Not every person can be a heroic figure on the scale of Gilgamesh. However, the absence of such a singular character does not result in the disappearance of the common archetypes that are associated with the story of Gilgamesh. As we have seen in cases such as the fisherman and the unnamed sultan from the story of the fisherman and the jinn, these characters embodied one or more of these tropes, such as the hero who attempts to defy fate by cleverly tricking the jinn or performs certain heroic deeds such as the sultan saving the prince from his evil wife are present. These tropes are common to the heroic genre and found in the 1001 Nights. Unfortunately, they cannot be directly linked to the story of Gilgamesh except that there are some commonalities that are present. A surprising inverse of this trope can also be found in the tale of the second royal dervish where we find a woman, Sit al-Husun, displaying these characteristics while fighting with all her might to take down Jarjaris the jinn, while all the men in the story just stood there in amazement. The point I am trying to elucidate here is that while similar stories may come up with similar archetypes present, it would be foolhardy to claim that one sole text was the originator of these types of stories in one geographical area and was then modified to fit the structure of local sensibilities. Every culture that was or is present at some point had their own heroes who fought extraordinary odds to come out on top. They did not need the story of Gilgamesh to come up with a hero for them. However, what the story of Gilgamesh does is that it enables us to examine not only the structure but the format and subsequently the longevity of these stories and enables us to categorize what type of oral or written story it was. Therefore, as a result, there can never be a final place where the 1001 Nights have come from. The survival of Gilgamesh in the format of the Iliad or the Odyssey clearly speaks to how oral stories are transmitted, changed to suit local sensibilities, and how these archetypes survive once the original story ceases to be told. 
Where would any of the heroic fantasy or even science fiction stories be today had not the structure of a heroic tale present in Gilgamesh survived? Let us now turn to examining the maelstrom which led to the creation of the 1001 Nights, the subcontinent inspiration. Robert Irwin, in his work The Arabian Nights, A Companion, points to four distinct pieces of literature originating in the subcontinent which provided an inspiration for the 1001 Nights. Again, I would like to make myself clear. In my scholarly opinion, pointing solely to the South Asian subcontinent as the originator of the 1001 Nights is simply incorrect. As we shall see in this and in later episodes, certain tales were certainly incorporated into this compendium, but not everything was, and certainly not as they were found in the subcontinent. That is why I prefer the term inspiration, because the stories were definitely modified to fit local sensibilities, and this led to the removal of references to Hindu and Buddhist moralities, which suited the listener where this literature was written. The Jataka The Jataka is a Buddhist collection of literature comprising anywhere from 547 to 550 tales, depending on the location where the text is found, which focuses on the the rebirths and reincarnations of Gautama Buddha, the founder of Buddhism. There is some consensus among scholars that these were purportedly told by the Buddha himself before his death around 400 BCE, although these claims cannot be verified. These births of the Buddha are not always in human form and sometimes takes the form of animals. In most of these tales, the Buddha appears not as the Buddha, many would know him as, but rather as some form of human in different stratums of society, such as taking the appearance of a king or of a beggar, and in some cases, a human who has been completely outcasted by society of the period. In others, he appears as a deva, a Buddhist celestial being who are not at the level of worship as other central versions of the Buddha, or he appears as an animal. The Jatakas were originally transmitted in both Prakrit, a group of Middle Indo-Aryan languages that were used within the subcontinent from the 3rd century BCE to the 8th century CE, and various forms of Sanskrit, probably depending on where the audience for these tales were residing. The actual oral tales in written form survives as a 5th century CE text written in Pali, another Middle Indo-Aryan language native to the subcontinent, but mainly used for canonical Buddhist texts. Like many of the pieces of literature from this period, that of the 2nd century CE, there is no clear author, nor would there have been, since they were mostly oral stories whose originators have been lost to the myths of time. Jajatakas were written down exactly in the same period as the story of Gilgamesh, letting us conclude that the 2nd century BCE was a formative period when oral stories had begun to be written down to be preserved. Unlike the story of Gilgamesh, however, the Jatakas form an integral piece of Buddhist religious literature which led to its survival and it being passed down as Buddhism spread throughout Asia when compared to the story of Gilgamesh, which was not religious in nature at all. The main purpose of this compendium of tales, apart from being entertaining in of themselves, as mentioned before, is to 
point out the many lives, acts, and spiritual practices of the Buddhists. They aim to serve as moral guideposts and teach Buddhist virtues of how to act, which are a central requirement to leave the cycle of death and rebirth and attain nirvana. In addition, these tales seek to further qualities of the Buddha, increasing the worship of his path, or teach the listeners the many ideological lessons from which they or the reader could understand what he or she had to strive towards. An interesting aspect of the Jatakas tales is that they were mainly animal fables that teach a lesson, such as the ass in the lion's skin or the foolish timid rabbit. These tales share a commonality that is also found in another piece of Greek literature, Aesop's Fable, where they perform the same function, that of teaching morals to the listeners. Although these tales do seem fascinating, their inclusion into the 1001 Nights does not seem to be clear. Robert Urban argues that the tale of the bull and the ass, one of the first stories that was told and incorporated into the tale of the merchant and his wife told by Shehrazad's father to dissuade her from the path she had chosen, was incorporated from the Jatakas. From a cursory glance, this does seem to be the case. Animal tales are indeed not common as far as we have heard and their inclusion, especially how the bull and the ass talk to each other, is different from what we have heard so far, especially as most of the tales usually have human or jinn characters. It is not hard, therefore, to assume that if the tale of the bull and the ass was incorporated into the 1001 Nights in some manner, be it that the oral storyteller had heard it from someone who traveled from the subcontinent, had traveled to the subcontinent himself, or that a textual copy had made its way into the hands of the storyteller from which he had borrowed the tale could have occurred and is not outside the realm of believability. Other tales of similar variety were used as well. Two other animal stories we have encountered so far are Sultan Sinbad and his falcon, where the falcon saves the sultan's life but gives up his own due to the actions of the sultan and the husband and the parrot, where the husband buys a parrot to spy on his cheating wife, only to kill it the second time when it reports what it sees and mourns the loss of the parrot once it is revealed that it was telling the truth. It should be noted that the two stories do not occur within the same translations of the 1001 Nights. As mentioned in the first episode of this podcast, I will be using two translations, one by Edward William Lane and the other by John Payne, and each of them have one story but not the other. However, both contain the story of the bull and the ass. I will be, in a later episode, examining the translators themselves and their efforts to present a supposed complete version of the 1001 Nights. However, now the question can be raised of whether Lane and Payne, working from two different textual copies of the 1001 Nights, either included this on their own as many previous translators had done, or were these stories already present in the text. At the time they were translating these tales, the 19th century, many other works were being translated as well. Could they have included these tales to present their translations as more mystical and oriental? If they were present, 
Why was one of the stories about the falcon and the other about a parrot? A cursory glance at both stories as cautionary tales but have a different set of characters and little to do with each other except in delivering a lesson in morality. Could the oral storyteller or the original writer who wrote the manuscript from which they were translating from have been using his discretion and incorporating these from the Jatakas? Were the Jatakas still making their rounds by this time? The author wrote the manuscript, which the translators used. These are questions that require answering, but unfortunately, I do not have any concrete answers. Regardless, based on the evidence present, I concur with Robert Irwin, although he has only pointed to the bull and the ass story, while I extended it to other tales where animals play a major role. As we continue our reading of the 1001 Nights, we may encounter further stories which may have been derived from the Jatakas. The Pancha Tantra Literature from the subcontinent does not appear to have sprung up in isolation, and there is evidence that literature composed in the period we are discussing, calmly borrowed from each other, had borrowed from the wider and older compendium of oral tales that were making their rounds with storytellers and the religious classes of the area. The next piece of literature that we examine is called the Pancha Tantra. The Pancha Tantra is a collection of interrelated animal fables with two key differences. The first is that the Pancha Tantra was clearly written for a Hindu audience and unlike the Jatakas, which focused on Buddhism and related religious tenets, the Pancha Tantra is clearly putting forward Hindu thoughts and religious beliefs. Secondly, there is a framing story that encapsulates the work, much like that of what we encountered with Shehrazad and the Shehenshah Shehriyar. And this encapsulating story incorporates Hindu elements as well. The encapsulating story is that of a Brahmin teacher teaching three young princes, which the work proclaims as being completely ignorant in how to be prudent, how to conduct a humanitarian life, and how the wise conduct their life. One of the translators for the Pancha Tantra, Franklin Edgerton, however, argues that the morality in these tales are non-existent and instead there are either glorifying shrewdness, practical wisdom in both the affairs of life and the affairs of government, as should suit the princes who will be raised to their thrones. I must admit, I have not read this work or the Jatakas, so I cannot collaborate or argue against this line of thought. However, this evaluation should be taken with a grain of salt, as this work would still be mired in the type of Orientalism that infected much of the work of translators in this period. Regardless, unlike the Jatakas, which is a composition of tales, the Pancha Tantra is comprised of five volumes, with each volume dealing with a specific moral quandary, such as losing or gaining friends, war and peace, or with the loss of or gain of property. Therefore, much of the stories comprising of one volume would contain tales which are present and give advice on the topic of that specific volume.
The author of this composition is attributed to a Brahmin author named Vishnu Sharma who is identified by the introductory text itself as the author of the work. Scholars have no other external evidence that the person so named had existed or was even real. Another author of the Pancha Tantra was put forward, this name being Vasubhaga and much like Vishnu Sharma, we completely lack any evidence that he even existed. Other scholars have put forward a theory that either of these two names might have been pseudonyms for other writers at the time of the creation of this text. However, we are again confronted with the question of who this author could have been. The only result we are confronted with is that his name has been lost to time. Current scholarly examination of the Pancha Tantra has that the surviving text that has come down to us in various forms had stemmed from a manuscript created in the 4th century CE and continually copied and recopied endlessly resulting in the many versions that scholars currently work with. The original text itself was written down during the same period as the Jatakas would have been that of the 2nd century BCE, of which a 4th century CE copy had been copied from. It is unclear as Egerton remarks that no original Sanskrit text of the Pancha Tantra had survived that was not written earlier than 1000 CE, including the original copy of the 4th century one. There is concrete evidence that the Pancha Tantra had found an audience outside the subcontinent. The first appearance of it traveling outside the subcontinent occurs during the reign of the Sasanian Shanshah Khusrau I, 531 CE to 579 CE. It was during his reign that the Sasanian Empire had grown to its largest expanse and had reached the Gandhara region of the subcontinent, today a part of northwest Pakistan. It was through the control of the region that the Sasanians were introduced to the Pancha Tantra, although it is also reasonable to assume that oral stories continued to flow with the trading routes as they usually did, and that texts may have also traveled. It was around 550 CE that we find a notable physician named Borzuya or Borzoi having been sent to the kingdom of Kanuj, which is presently located in North India and working with some Brahmins, translated a text from the Sanskrit to Pehlavi, also known as Middle Persian, and given the title Kharikak Ud Damanask. The question of why Borzuya was sent to India, which is a tale of in itself, or even if he was a physician, has created some discussion among scholars. One of the strongest opinions raised was that the name Borzuya, rather than referring to a particular person, refers instead to a sage named Bozorg meher i Bohtagan that served both Khusrau I and his father Kavad I, 498-531 CE. Putting aside the argument of who this person really was, it cannot be argued that he, alongside his Brahmin counterparts, were the ones who had translated the text. The popularity of this text exploded, and by the time of the Islamic conquest, it had been translated into Syriac and into Arabic. Unfortunately, like many texts of the period, both copies of the Pancha Tantra that may have been brought back 
and his subsequent Pahlavi version are lost to time, but the Syriac and Arabic translation of the Pahlavi translation still exists. It was indeed fortunate, therefore, that prior to its disappearance, that a person named Abu Muhammad Abdullah Ruzbi ibn Daduya, also known as Ibn al-Muqaffa, died 756 or 759 CE, had seen the translated text in Pahlavi and translated it into Arabic, giving it the title of Khalila wa Dimna, the Arabic translation of the Pahlavi Khariyak un Damanask in an effort at recreating courtly Pahlavi literature into an Abbasid courtly text and partly as a way to endeavor himself with the Abbasid court as they had just overthrown the Umayyad Khalifate for whom he had worked in the past. There are a couple of key differences between the Arabic translation and the original. Firstly, Ibn al-Muqaffa fleshes out the framing story by building on what the Pahlavi version had started, by changing the characters from being the Brahmin and the three princes, to instead being a merchant and his three sons, who had found themselves in poverty after having wasted away their father's wealth. Secondly, Ibn Muqaffa added more stories to this compendium with tales which present subtle political messages, such as a story which told of Dimna's trial and his role in the death of the bull Shanzabe, who is a key personality in the first chapter. What was further added in addition to what could have been added during the Pahlavi translation is unknown. At most, Scholars can point to four additional stories which may have been another attempt at political commentary. It is clear he included other stories to express his viewpoints on a political matter which would have been dangerous to do so in any other format. Like the Pahlavi text, the original text by Ibn al-Muqaffa has been lost. However, subsequent copies which were made of his work survived and resulted in Ibn al-Muqaffa's translation being considered one of the central texts in Arabic literature and from which all others grew from. In the next episode, we will continue with the examination of South Asian influences in the Arabian Nights. This episode has been written edited and produced by Saf Big. Thank you for listening. I hope you have a wonderful day and or night. And may the journeys on which you are set upon be fruitful. Thank you for listening.